Phil. Hey, Laurie. Welcome back, listeners. This is episode three of Laurie and Phil Flicks and Film, covering the best of Netflix and the silver screen. But, you know, we're in a pandemic still, so it's all much for muchness, really. Do you find that all the worlds of entertainment kind of merge into one in your brain, Phil? They are slightly coalescing into more how much engagement do I want to give the thing I am watching slash doing? I think that's the key thing is, is it on the background? Am I watching it attentively? Um, I feel like TV is kind of the happy medium at the moment where you can sort of drift in and out of engagement. Films, I feel like you should give your attention to them. Video games, you have to. That's my hot take. Well, there you go. Look, there's a, a little piece, a little pearl of, uh, it's not even wisdom. What is it? Did nothing. <laughs> pearl of rambling uh, thrown at you right here in this introduction. Today, we're going to be talking about The Mandalorian Series 1. Um, I've watched all but the last episode of Series 2, so we'll get to that one later as well. But, How you know, does that happen? It's... How is it that you've managed to get to this point and not finish <laughs> the very final episode? It drives me crazy. A lot of boring reasons. But like, I think it's worth doing two, uh, two as well, isn't it? Because it was a big success even after Series 1. People thought it had kind of saved Star Wars under Disney. All that sort of stuff. We'll talk about that in a minute. Phil, I don't know whether we are going to talk about Wonder Woman 1984 on this episode, are we? No, we said not to. That was the thing. <laughs> okay, so just cut that bit. So what, what are you going to talk about? So I've also watched the very first episode of Bridgerton. The new mm. thing from Shonda Shonda Rhimes. Shondaland. Shonda Shondaland, her company? Yeah. yeah, she's a big mega producer and this is her new sort of hybrid of Jane Austen meets Gossip Girl. Uh, and, and coincidentally, I've been watching Grey's Anatomy too. And as another little tidbit, I'm going to show you the link between Grey's Anatomy and Japanese anime. That's the little tease wow. for what's going to happen. That You should have done that like with a more clickbaity title rather than I'll show you the link between... You need to say, you won't believe how similar Grey's Anatomy is to anime. Or, Grey's Anatomy in anime, can it be... No, that one's rubbish. Don't use that one. Anyway, <laughs> let's do that later. Uh, and a Netflix show called Dinosaur King. That you might remember if you were a child in the early 2000s. Uh, so I'll chat about that. There's loads on the show. And I might even have a little bit of a treat for you, Laurie, at the very, very end. Well, who wouldn't want to wait until the end? Uh, for such a thing welcome back and uh, you can get in touch with us about anything that we say on the show flicksandfilm at gmail.com or at flicksandfilm on twitter I'd say it's highly likely Phil that uh, um, some people will be hearing this episode first of all because uh, although the podcast has been published on Spotify and loads of things I'm doing it through Anchor it's not yet on the Apple store because Apple likes to take their time over bum, these bum, things bum. it can't just be anyone and on the iTunes store so uh, well if you're joining us from there then I'm glad that we made it on and welcome. Let's get going, shall we? Yes, let's do it. Okay, Mandalorian time. Phil, it was hailed as the saviour of Disney Star Wars. Is that true? Uh, yes, I'm going to be positive. Yes, I think it is going to be the saviour of Star Wars. It's been a mega, mega hit. I think a lot of people subscribe to Disney Plus uh, just for that reason, just to get the... Uh, the shot of uh, Star Wars goodness that this shiny bounty hunter brings. Well, you know, I will say, I think quite a few people feel like this as well. I was getting slightly sick of everyone saying, oh, it's really good. No, it's um, it's like real Star Wars, as if everything else that had happened was only fake Star Wars. And this really took the law, I'm going to use that word, I hate that word, <laughs> really took the law seriously. And yeah. And uh, I, for that very reason, I steered away from it. I kind of thought, you know what? Everyone's going on about it, so I don't believe you, and I'm going to be Mr. Grump about it. And I've only recently gone for it. And I had to say, Phil, um, I actually watched the first episode and wasn't blown away by it. I thought, is this really what all the fuss is about? This feels a bit cheesy. Well, it's funny to say that was my very, very much my reaction as well. Horatio Sands, the Assassinate Live um, actor, cast member, he was that blue alien right from episode one who was sort of American-y and a bit jokey, a bit sort of Marvel movie-esque in his jokes. And I was thinking, oh, I'm not sure about this. I have a bad feeling about this, to use a good Star Wars term. Yeah, um, well done. But I think, it, I think it, its trajectory is only going up, I think. That's my impression of Mandalorian Season 1 into Season 2, is it sort of starts its slow incline into uh, good fun entertainment. Well, let's talk a bit about um, the things that make it unique, because, I mean, there's only eight episodes per series. I don't have the figures in front of me, but I should think it's a massive budget. I mean, you know, HBO are famous for the big budget TV shows. I should think this is even higher than that, right? Yeah, I think it's got top quality special effects. Um, it's obviously made with a lot of love. 
I think that's my impression. John Favreau and Dave Filoni, 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 Filoni. Yeah, Dave Filoni, he is, and they're sort of the big two that always get referred to, right? John Favreau, who it's easy to forget, he started his career with Swingers. Have you ever seen that film? Yes, I did. And, Alongside uh, Vince Vaughn. Yeah, and he was sort of the actor-director hybrid. And then it was quite a big deal when he got um, Elf. Elf was his next big directorial Is that the one? thing. Yeah, Interesting. And then, uh, of course, he was happy in Iron Man. And he kind of became Marvel's friend and therefore Disney's friend. And therefore Mr. Safe Pair of Hands. I think he's even credited to... with the success of Marvel because he was directing Iron Man. And that's the kind of the, the seed that, sprung this massive tree the great oak tree of marvel <laughs> the great oak tree well how very grand it sounds like something out of guardians of the galaxy well it's uh, and i think it's interesting that he's the sort of big name on it and his name appears slightly nauseatingly i think massively in the credits for every every single episode and i'll, I'll say you know you do always watch the credits i don't know about you because they've got that kind of fake oil painting <laughs> thing going on yeah and the great music and so we talked about this and that's ludwig Goranson, and he wrote the music for Tenet, so he appears Tenet. to be being lined up to... I don't, again. Uh, you don't know how uh, to say that word. Of, he sort of seems to be being lined up um, as a replacement for Hans Zimmer. I'm just looking at a photo of him now on, uh, on the IMDb. Very handsome guy, a lot of sort of curling locks. Uh, he's done Marvel films as well, of course. And I, did he not also do Arrival? I have a feeling it was him on Arrival. No, Johan Johansson. <laughs> Don't make that. I'll, I'll just like keep that in. No, I'm dead wrong. Actually, it's Johan Johansson. You can see, you can see how I got uh, in trouble. Let's move swiftly past that. Anyway, but he's a big deal. The music's a big part of it. I think everything about this show wants you to believe that there's love and care and detail and investment, and it's not kind of a slapdash. Let's make toys. Let's just make profit thing. Which, of course, is what attracted a huge amount of criticism for the Force Awakens trilogy, and I think kind of deservedly so. It really followed fan. Uh, opinions whereas this one at the very least seems to have its own sense of identity and you know even down to the cinematography style and this is actually something i noticed that's differentiating between season one and season two but did you notice that as well phil they've got the kind of ultra letterbox and almost tilt shift feel to some of the camera work where there's an incredibly shallow depth of field which means all the edges of the frame are in soft focus and it's only right in the center that things come into focus it's actually almost kind of hard to see. Do you know why that might be? No, you tell me. It's because they're using this brand new technology, which actually uses the Unreal Engine, a video game engine. No, um, really? And it uses ultra LED, um, high, high, what's the word, HD pixels to um, create the backdrop and to create the lighting, more importantly. You know Mandalorian, he's got a, a really shiny silver thing. Yeah, beautiful. And so blue screen or silver uh, or green screen really, 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 really wouldn't work. Uh, to get those lighting touches correct. So instead, they they are actually physically surrounded by this huge kind of live picture that is giving them the environments and the lighting. So, so it's none of it done on location. I thought some of the desert scenes looked like they were done on location. Well, that's the me, magic, but... isn't it? I think actually wow. there might be a couple, but most of it, I think 90% of it is done in this unreal environment that is computer generated so that the director can see it live they can move and adjust rocks and things to make it fit that's so cool you know what maybe that's why the spaceship i was going to comment on this his ship which is cool the razor crest or whatever it is blends into the background much better than a lot of cgi ships uh, that we've seen in other sort of temple productions and I, I wondered if there was just something slightly different about the technology and it doesn't surprise me you know we've got friends uh, who work in architecture and unreal the Unreal Engine is being used there to put high-paying clients in their own houses that they want to build, that kind of thing. So VR combined with Unreal. And, you know, and, and so how cool that it's all sort of synergizing. But that goes to prove my point. It's all detail. It's all right up to the minute. It's all cutting edge. But, Phil, is it all shine and no centre? Here's my thing. I would say that they've made a big deal of, did you know Star Wars is a Western at heart and it's all a Western and it's based on samurai films and samurai films inspired the spaghetti Westerns and, and how they sort of really over-egging that sort of solo, solitary figure who doesn't speak, a non-verbal lead, who yeah. kind of swans in like a cowboy, sorts out a situation and leaves as quietly as he came. And I think that is really atmospheric and exciting but I think it took too long in season one to really engage with who this character is. Um, and 
I think behind it all, it's not really that serious. I think it's a Saturday morning cartoon with a very, very, very big budget. That's my take on I'm with you on this one, Phil. And I think that is the secret to enjoying it. I'm convinced of it. If you don't expect it to move mountains and you ignore the voices of all the people saying this is the real Star Wars, it's, you know, gritty and realistic. Ignore all that rubbish and just think this is basically a comic book, which makes massive sense when, you know, Dave Filoni, who's behind the Clone Wars TV cartoon, is a massive driving force behind this. It makes sense that it kind of is comic booky. It just has amazing uh, spit and polish all over it using advanced techniques, as we're saying. It's interesting you say that it's supposed to be like a Western because actually the story and a huge amount of the mechanics and even the episode style of this show doesn't make me think of Westerns, actually. I think Westerns are so far out of contemporary relevance now. They're almost irrelevant to young audiences. I know that's a controversial thing to say, but I think that's true. What it made me think of is The Witcher 3. Have you ever played The Witcher? (laughs) I have. Like The Mandalorian is so much like The Witcher. It's almost a joke. There's one particular episode where he goes to like a people who um, they fish for krill, don't they? Out in sort of wetlands and they live in uh, wooden huts. And then they've got these raiders who turn up and steal all their hard-earned food. And they've got a big chicken walker. You don't find it out, but they've got an ATST, which is keeping them safe. And he comes in and kind of makes friends with the locals. They tell him their tale of woe. And he decides whether to accept payment to go and deal take on with the, the side monster. mission. Yeah. yeah, that is what it is. It's all of this is a Witcher 3 side mission, which I wonder <laughs> like that has really resonated massively with video game audiences. So much so that it moved into Netflix, of course, with Henry Cavill, big success on Netflix, The Witcher. And um, I think that is what this is. And people do like the kind of nomadic, um roguish tough guy with a heart of gold uh, who's trying to help people he comes across while also being quite reserved about doing it, blah, blah, blah. I think Western, forget it. That's dead and buried. And following on from that, my kind of gripe, I guess, with the show, I actually enjoy it more when it was, I just sort of realised, oh, it's a silly cartoon and it's just meant to be for fun. It's not this sort of super serious show. Um, But my gripe with it is that if it is this sort of cowboy guy, this samurai guy who's coming in to clean up the town... I would say Mandalorian is rather ineffective and uh, he seems to always get his butt kicked. That's my well, general Well, that's how interesting take. you say that. No, I agree with you there. And I think we've got used to over the years, especially with superhero films, expecting the, the hero to turn up and just be amazing and blow everyone away all the time. And it is quite uh, noticeable that the Mandalorian is always getting beaten up and often requires help, which I find more believable, actually, because there is still something special about him. I find it fine. But the thing which makes him special, special, the thing that makes him special (laughs) isn't him. It's not that he's a really resilient, bright, smart guy. It's his best car armor. He's just got fancy, shiny toys. That's keep him safe all the time. That's it. Well, I think you could see it that way. I know what you mean. He does look a bit sluggish in fights occasionally, and often it's for story reasons. And when he needs to be amazing for story reasons, he is suddenly amazing. So I agree with you there that they play with that a little bit, but it didn't bother me too much. I think one thing that Jude and I talked about is, I, you know, I almost hate to say it because I'm sure everyone has said it, surprising how effective the performance and the story is despite the fact you can't see his face at all yeah and what's really interesting is it's not always paid by the same guy did you know that i didn't know that is that because pedro pascal is too expensive he's a he's a big movie star he's in wonder woman <laughs> well, 84. Exactly. he's got stuff to do all they need is his voice no there's like three of them that play it sometimes it's pedro sometimes the others two oh, that's stunt actually a shame i wish i didn't know that oh sorry I'll, well pretend you didn't hear it Oh, men in black. Well, cubes. it just makes it more fun that way. So they, they had to find lots of body doubles, did they? I no, no, no. I think there was dedicated only three people play him in the entire show, and depending on what sort of scene it is, I think there's sort of like a a, a body performer who's more trying to get the the actions down. Then it's Pedro, and then there's an, a kind of stunt guy who does the more dangerous things that he gets into. But they all work together to try and make it consistent performance. It is. It is so I didn't know that, and it didn't come across to me. But I did think to myself, there's quite a few advantages with this kind of show, because I, I noticed that they've gone for the rubbery aliens um, rather than the cool CGI aliens, generally across the board in this case. Obviously, Baby Yoda, who we've not even mentioned yet, is a very odd hybrid um, of practical and fake unless it's all fake but made to look practical it's interesting no it's me. practical apparently he got very explicitly told to use a puppet they were thinking should we go cgi or not and it was like use the puppet herner Vortzog said use the puppet well he's right about that and because there is something tactile about this you know him carrying baby yoda around is much more kind of it's much more moving i think and much more sort of believable when you can see 
that it's clearly there in the frame. It works really well. But it, all the other aliens as well. So in Moss Eisley, they've got a lot of goofy looking aliens, which I quite respect because that is a lot more like the original Star Wars. And it kind of makes the universe feel a bit banal. But one advantage of it, again, is that I bet you this uh, show translates fantastically into other languages because you never see the Mandalorian <laughs> yeah, moving. That's and very all true. these aliens, their mouths just open and close. Like, they just so, sort of flap like their horses rather exactly, than actually. Yeah. <laughs> what an amazing cross cultural discovery. <laughs> just puppet it all up. <laughs> I thought that was good. Um, can we talk a little bit about the fact that uh, almost every episode is directed by someone else? Yeah. <laughs> so I thought you were going to jump in there. I'm going to say that I, it, it's, it's quite cool actually to see because they've got a limited pool of directors right so they've got uh dave filoni who does a bit of it john favreau who does a bit of it taika waititi well taika waititi only does like um one episode that i'm aware of a guy called rick famuyiwa who i wasn't familiar with at all and then deborah chow as well i think we might have missed a couple but it's quite interesting because you do get a chance to see different directorial styles um, handling exactly the same subject matter, which is quite a rare thing in some ways. Normally you have to just buy the director's vision, but here you can see the different ways that it gets applied. And it makes me think I really don't like Dave Filoni as a director at all. I think oh, really? all, of his, yeah, all of his episodes I have found dull and they're incredibly poorly paced. And actually they make me think of comic books. I mean, I'm saying this partly from episode two as well, where it's a bit more obvious um, his handprint on these things. But episode one of The Mandalorian is directed by Dave Filoni, and that felt a bit odd to me. It felt a bit slow and a bit comic booky and a bit overly portentous. Whereas I think Rick Famuyiwa, he gets quite a lot of the action stuff, right? So he gets the uh, the second episode in series one with the IG-88 droid, which, let's be honest, that was quite a cool, uh, quite a cool episode. And in season two, he did a really cool one starring Bill Burr as well, which I was very impressed by. It's, it is interesting seeing that there's some episodes which really were misses for me. And I was just a bit like, oh, they're having to do which that. Which ones? They're, Come on, hit us with the, it. The ones where it was like a fetch quest or a side mission. I was just a bit like, come on. Like, 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 yeah, this is just, you're just creating things that he has to overcome for, for no reason. It's not, it's not like... It, they're optional they feel like filler the ones which i really liked though was the the bill burr episode um and uh the, crew. the heist breaking a prisoner out. i thought it was really cool and having the the republic uh the rebels now the republic being the people in charge being the government i think it's such a small thing but it makes the it makes me feel invested i don't know why but i like the idea oh like yeah they're gonna be in charge now so they've got some prison ships and they're going to break in and steal it and of course it's all going to go wrong i i love the episode but i know for a fact um our dad laurie did not like it he was not a fan did of it he at say, all. did he say why yeah he told us that he dropped that i think they the thought day. it was very unbelievable and the cast of characters were just all very cartoony which well uh, hence what we're talking about it's not a surprise do you know what i realized is that i thought that the twi'lek was incredibly familiar um, the whole way through. And then I realised, uh, of course, it's Natalia Tenner, who plays Trunks. Tonks? Trunks. Not Trunks. That's a Dragon Ball, isn't it? Tonks. Tonks in Harry Potter and was in About a Boy. She's the girl that he fancies. I interviewed her, Phil, on the radio. Is that why you like? Are you pleased yeah, with that well, like, connection? Yeah, well, obviously. It always, uh, it always sticks with me. She played... Uh, uh, Osha, is it in uh, Game of Thrones as well? Yep. But I thought I thought she did a really good job as an over-the-top mean Twi'lek. Um, Baby Yoda, you've already said they wanted it to be practical effects. Do you like the whole story? The fact, I mean, again, we won't go into season two sort of spoilers on it, but here's this little mini force sensitive Yoda thing that the Empire really wants. Did you did you find it compelling enough to drive a whole series, or did you think that the Mandalorian himself, you know, who he is? what the kind of mysterious religion or creed is that they follow. I really, Personally, I can't stand all that Mandalorian stuff. I find it really cheesy and painful to watch, especially um, uh, what's her name? Swallow, Emily Swallow's performance as the The, the, the blacksmith. Teeth, gr- teeth grating. I can't yeah. deal with that. I think the story is both of them personally, because you get the whole idea that he's a foundling. So he's not actually from the Mandalorian planet, but he got adopted into it. And now he sees it as his family and he is continuing the the Mandalorian culture. And now he's found this little creature who is abandoned and he decides to take it under his care. And with that comes a lot of responsibility that perhaps he didn't bargain for. And so you've got this instinctual decision becoming then a burden and responsibility. I don't mind it. I think that is quite good motivation. I feel like that goes back into the Western thing of you're just a drifter doing grit, a job. almost. Yeah, it? and then you you end up being sort of... They, they become your uh, what's the word 
sidekick part not, no not sidekick that's, i was thinking Jiminy much Cricket. more grand than sidekick <laughs> it's like their um their duty or whatever i don't know i'm trying to think there's a little it doesn't matter doesn't matter sidekick works fine let's go with sidekick i mean that's in, in practical terms that's kind of what he is isn't he he's got a lot of comic relief in there some really lovely moments i mean jude i watched it with jude and she said a few times she didn't expect to find baby yoda as cute and engaging as she did and i think she was taken by surprise how effective the design of Baby Yoda is. It's and the it big is eyes, Disney man. Big eyes. It makes me think it looks like my daughter, my baby daughter. We have said a few times, it looks just like... Your daughter's lovely. She doesn't look anything yeah, like no, Baby well, Yoda. No, so that's what I mean. No, but there is something that is genuinely baby-like about this maternal response. Yeah, inducing. it inspires the, in- uh, the instincts. Um, do you know, I, I'll say I agree with you about it filling out the world. Is that why this has been successful when the sequel trilogy hasn't been? Because I think that was a lot of the criticism. That was rehashing. and It didn't feel like it expanded the Star Wars universe. It felt like it was kind of almost cannibalizing it, right? Trying to eat it again, like get a second bite to all this wonder. Whereas The Mandalorian is the opposite of that. It's sort of on the fringes and out in the outskirts of the world, which is kind of what the books did, right? Yeah, I think the problem with the sequels trilogy is that essentially in order to reboot it, because it kind of was a soft reboot, they undid a lot of the accomplishments of the previous story. And actually, you, there is something satisfying in seeing something progress. You've been on a journey with these these characters, this story. You've seen the progression, the the achievements of that story. And so therefore to suddenly jump from, hey, they're on, uh, what's it, the, the Ewok planet and they're dancing and having a little like forest rave to then jump to force awakens where the empire is essentially there again and the rebels are still there and nothing seems to have changed really in that interim i think this gives something for people to ponder about and wonder about as there's this period unmapped period where you can tell stories that still feel linked to that star wars that kids loved when they when they were kids but now I've grown up and they want to hear more about that, that sort of world. I think it bridges the gap. Yeah, I agree with you, man. And one thing I noticed was that a lot of the supporting cast that we see anyway are not young. <laughs> I know it's not something you would necessarily think about, but when Carl you think Weathers. about The Force Awakens, well, right, when you think about The Force Awakens, that was young people, wasn't it? And they were going for a new youthful demographic. But you're right, Carl Weathers, off of Predator, right? Uh, and uh, Arrested Development, if you've seen that show. Like and even Pedro Pascal himself. Like, I'm not saying they're old, these people, and Gina Carano, but they're not. They don't give you the image of really young, kind of youthful, wide-eyedness. It's more like experience, isn't it? These they're people not, are they're all not kind students. of veterans. That, I think that's kind of no. The thing. They're not students. But I think that uh, proves the point that they're going after the older Star Wars fan who wants to see this sort of universe of their childhood that they probably fantasize about living in and being a part of. Now that's a chance to have that a bit more realized and and have a bit more fun with it. And so I, I think it's kind of interesting. Speaking of those guys, I really liked Carl Weathers by the end. I wasn't so keen on him at the beginning because he almost seemed, his speeches were a bit odd. They were almost more poetic than they were believable. Um, but I quite liked him by the end. He had a kind of statesman-like uh, quality that, that was okay. Whereas Gina Carano, I really did like. I liked her all the way through. I know she's quite a controversial figure outside of the show these days, but I, I liked her performance. And I think... It took me back to our review years ago now of the original Haywire. Wonder Woman. Oh, no. Well, okay. she, was in, she was in Haywire with Steven Soderbergh, definitely, yeah. But, but when I reviewed Wonder Woman, one of the things I noticed was that they cast Gal Gadot, Gal Gadot, and she does a really good job. But I felt like there was a missed opportunity to cast someone who was clearly physically really strong because you never see that in mm. a sort of female uh, central, central characters. They, they're just like Black Widow, right? They just flip around and knock everyone out but they don't carry a physical sense of strength. And, I, and I've often thought it's a real shame. I, it makes me think of Jet from Gladiators, which we talked about, <laughs> who is often, she has spoken about how she was really self-conscious about having muscles because like she felt that there was a sense she couldn't express femininity and a muscular physique at the same time. There wasn't space for it in the world or in popular entertainment. So even though she was probably one of the most loved and sort of desired, like, uh, uh, female celebrities of the time. You're really stumbling Actually, over the fact that you fancy Jet. That's what I'm getting. Well, everyone did. I still, <laughs> yeah, still do. But my point is, I like the fact that Gina Carano is obviously physically extremely strong. And so her action scenes hit in a different way. That took a long time to say, but there you go. What are your thoughts on the sporting cast? Yeah, I think, um, generally speaking, I liked the growing interplay between them. And whenever you start something new, there's there's sort of, it feels a bit barren and empty. And, and this lone wolf slowly acquires these people that he's interacted with. I liked the, the show as it went on, 
the fact that it starts to populate his world with more and more characters that kind of you can latch on to. I really like that in season two, but again, I'll save that for season two. What I'm curious of, Laurie, is what you thought of Moff Gideon at the end of season one in his TIE Fighter and particularly the the closing bit where he used something to get out of the TIE Fighter. What's your opinion on that? Uh, this is Giancarlo Esposito, right? And um, immediate, he actually is a, a scene-stealing performance in the Maze Runner series of films, if you ever watched that. Um, he plays a kind of grizzled veteran who's on the goodies side, and he's really brilliant in that. So I was kinda, it was kind of cool to see him. Um, I'm not crazy about the character because I think it's the, the closest you get to the sequel Star Wars approach to you know, the good-bad dichotomy. I think one thing I really enjoyed about The Mandalorian is how the Empire come across, even <laughs> Werner Herzog is over the top. But oh, he's in quite great, an understated, man. He is, he is great, but in an understated way, so you buy it. Whereas Giancarlo Esposito Pesca. is not understated, <laughs> like, at all. He's over-the-top nonsense, really. He reminds me a bit of First Order types, mm. right, with his shiny suit. And he just is evil. And, I mean, that when, the reveal in the final episode of him uh, was a bit disappointing. I, I think the whole, that whole episode by, directed by Taika Waititi, I found disappointing because I thought it was actually terribly paced and plotted. Um, and it was almost like they brought him in just to do the really funny scout trooper scene at the beginning where they try and shoot a little can of rubbish in the dirt. Yeah. And then everything else about it was bad. So I thought his entrance into the field was kind of mishandled um, because it was surrounded by nonsense, like them setting up this repeating blaster and, and kind of doing nothing and blah, blah. Anyway... And then the dark saber. I assume it is the dark saber we're talking about. Yes. Well, what do you want? Fine. It's mysterious. <laughs> it doesn't taking, excite I, me. I'm taking joy because I just I know you, Laurie, and I could tell you just be a bit like about it. Well, all. Who cares? It doesn't really matter. Is, is anyone people, excited? Some no. like some 11 year old boy or something is going to be like, whoa, and and uh, a what, negative so cool. lightsaber. That's amazing. Oh, like, is that what it is? Well, it's a dark. I didn't saber, even notice. It? A lightsaber, dark saber. But it's not like a black lightsaber. I kind of uh, well, yeah, but like to a to a young boy or girl, I think that would be amazing. They like blow your mind. It's cool. Do you not think that's like just uh, join the dots up? It's, cool. It was definitely done as a wow, what a cool moment scene. But I don't know. It didn't bother me that much. I was more interested in his Tie Fighter and how they decided they got collapsible wings. And <laughs> yeah. uh, I like the fact that he was displayed as a baddie who does everything. A bit like Darth Vader, like he gets in the ship and flies around and is a good pilot and all this sort of stuff. Thought that was quite nicely done. Uh, but no, I don't. I don't find him particularly interesting as a villain. But look, I'm enjoying it, and I would say to you, if you have Disney Plus already, then you might as well give it a go and try and get past the first two episodes. I think that's my biggest tip: get past the first two episodes, wait for the supporting cast to really play a part in what's going on. And I would say, enjoy, it's an atmosphere show for me. I like the atmosphere. And I like the sort of cosy slash cold feeling of space. I like the interplay between Pedro Pascal and Baby Yoda um, and the kind of wandering, I wonder where this is going to go sense of it. Mm. Oddly enough, when there's when it's more closely tied to a plot and a story, I find it less interesting. Um, so I would I would watch it for the atmosphere more than anything else. Well, there you go. I wonder what your thoughts are. You can send in your thoughts to flicksandfilm at gmail.com. Flick spelt with F-L-I-X. That's the right. Traditional flick, like you. I mean, it is something. the name of the podcast, so hopefully, that I know. Comes but it's just nicely. you know, just people might be listening. They might not have thought, <laughs> "Oh, Lee Millen." No, yeah, there you go. Okay, on to something much shorter and sillier. I think. All right, Phil. This is only brief, and it's a show called Dinosaur King. Now, uh, I imagine you're getting to this point as a father yourself, but sooner or later, you end up watching a huge amount of children's TV when you've got kids. And Netflix has really opened that world up in quite an unsettling <laughs> way because whatever is sort of taking your kids' fancy at the time, and they do, you know, they're in dominates change, your life for the next six months. Well, yeah. yeah, and there is a show for it. More than that, there's probably five shows for it spanning the decades, which is actually really nice when you think about it. And it's for that reason that as we were scrolling through Netflix at one point, uh, my two kids said, "Oh, that's um, let's watch dinosaur that dinosaur Pokemon." I'm like what? The dinosaur Pokemon show, Dad. Like, what are you talking about? So I scroll through and I find something that does look like dinosaur Pokemon. And it's called Dinosaur King. And it's a TV series from the early 2000s that only lasted two series. That's 80 episodes, though. That's how TV episodes. used to go. I know, man. I know. And it was a Sega game. And it's kind of amazing. It's like Sega were like, well, Pokemon's been good. Yu-Gi-Oh's been good. What are we going to do? 
And so they made a game which is Pokemon mixed with Yu-Gi-Oh! And they went with dinosaurs as well. It's so calculated to appeal to a demographic. But here's the thing. It 100% worked. When you actually turn on the show, it's a carbon copy of Pokemon. It even uses the same voice cast. I assume it's the same production <gasps> no, company. Really? So yeah, Ash Ketchum is there. He's playing a new kid uh, called Max, I think it is. They've got Jesse and James and Misty and all those guys. I don't think Brock, which is a big error because... Uh, he was fantastic. He was the best voice character from the original Pokemon. Uh, but it's unbearable. It's so, and it, it's so unoriginal and bland. It's a mystery that it got made. It's almost like a history piece for what TV and uh, materialistic world was like in the early 2000s uh, before the sort of horrifying austerity crisis and everything else. So oh, watch it for that. The, 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 re- the main reason I want to bring it up is that to me, it was obvious rehashed trash, basically. But to my kids Loving who it. haven't had this world yet, you know, my oldest is five. Well, here's, her, here's what she said. Um, we were watching the last few episodes of season two. And when I turned it off, she was really, you know, uh, distressed about this. Said, I really want to know what happens next, Dad, she oh, was no. saying. Like, I really want to know. And she really clearly wanted to know what happened next. And I was like, wow, I don't, I don't remember that feeling. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I don't, I don't remember how much I desperately want to know what comes in the next episode after a cliffhanger at the end of an 80-episode <laughs> program. And then more than that, when we got to the final episode, I was like, okay, we've got time for, for one more. Um, should we do it? And she was like, I want to, but also I don't know if I do want to because she was so anxious. She didn't want to turn whether... the... the what did she... No, she was anxious about whether they would win or not. She didn't really... <laughs> oh, there was man. a part of her that didn't realise that the goodies might, you know, would definitely win. She thought there's a possibility they might lose. Oh, and man. then <laughs> at the end of it... Uh, I, well, I'll tell it this way. Um, she was blown away by the ending of this whole thing, right? And uh, my wife came home from uh, from work and I said, you know, you've got to ask her uh, what she made of um, of Dinosaur King at the end of it. And what she said, mummy, you won't believe it. They saved the entire universe. <laughs> and she, she, said, she said this as if like, you won't believe what this happened in this program. This is such good news. It's all safe. They, the entire you they saved the entire universe and I how realized, does nobody know about dinosaur king they saved know, the entire universe they, the entire universe i've never seen this before in a, in a series <laughs> I, it's so amazing isn't it to see someone engage in that for the first time because now it's like oh, for goodness sake we even say the opposite with marvel films off oh, can we just stop saving the universe please i'm really bored of this can you can you Let's just do small city stories for once? you know yeah small stories no it's not good enough for my daughter they saved <laughs> the entire universe so there you go dinosaur king getting a new lease of life it absolutely doesn't deserve it but um they're loving it the new generation i kind of encourage you to watch it to see exactly what i'm talking about maybe there's some poor writer who's this was their like only gig they could get and like they've got this knockoff pokemon thing and they're thinking i've got to let's just churn it out and here they go they've inspired a five-year-old girl to dream big and save the universe well, you are right about that. And that's kind of kind of the other half of my point, the two sides of the same coin, which is that when you tell a story and you and you tell it 100%, you know, then well, there's nothing to stop someone getting engaged in it. And it is easy to spit on. I saw some people reviewing it seriously. Anime fans, man, they take everything seriously. <laughs> and uh, it's got 5.5 on IMDb. So anyway, look, have a look at it. Um, I just thought that was kind of that was one of the sweetest things I've come across. During that lockdown. is very sweet. That is very, very sweet. What's funny is that... Um your your kids generation our kids generation will have the joy of actually being able to finish shows because my experience as a tip kid was i did have those same feelings of what's going to happen next i need to know what's going to happen next but it was so hard to follow these tv shows and because they never broadcast them in the right order and if you miss one episode there was no like netflix you couldn't go back and stream it again i have literal like vivid memories of feeling so distraught because i kept on missing episodes of digimon because it was on yes, too early yeah and my dad Bucky O'Hare, I, take it back teenage mutant ninja turtles power uh, rangers yeah i'm with you dad would str- like I'd, I'd like beg him like please come and cut me at peck me as quickly as you can because i want to get back and watch digimon i need to see the next episode <laughs> and i remember really really distinctly he came super early picked me up like bang on time ready to go home i uh, race home i turn the tv on and it's a political broadcast and they weren't showing oh, it i was kidding. gutted you remember that that's a genuine so vivid film. like i was like why do people need to know about this i need to know what happened to agamon 
still feel like this, Phil. You know, and now your dreams have come true because you could just watch, Net- yeah, watch Netflix all day. You could, could do that and I never could. watch politics ever again. Is that a good thing? Praise <laughs> the Lord. <laughs> So, Laurie, have you managed to watch Bridgerton at all? I'm so glad that you brought this up because I um, came home later than usual and Judith was watching Bridgerton. And it's one of these things where a bit like Emily in Paris, sorry, Emily in Paris, and uh, a few few other programmes like this, she tends to put these things on because she doesn't think she'll be able to convince me uh, to watch them. But Bridgerton, I did sit down with her (laughs) and watch a bit of. I've got some quite strong feelings about Bridgerton, but Phil, tell me yours first. Well, I was just curious whether or not you felt the same sort of revulsion that I felt watching it, because I can totally see myself getting well into it and watching it and binging it and having a great old time as a sort of trashy, bingeable TV show. But there was a deep part of me that was quite like upset at the the ridiculousness of Britishness in the show and how everyone is named the most stereotypical trashy versions of british names and well like, like what that. i can't even and remember the character names it's like featherington and weatherson <laughs> and bridgerton and it's like oh oh all i could think of was um tobias being mrs featherbottom, mrs. featherbottom. Whatever, in, uh... that is what the show is yes. in one sense yes you're right about that <laughs> exactly. mrs. and it's just like well i don't quite know how to exp- express it without being a little bit culturally insensitive but i feel like it's almost like british face like here's some <laughs> americans dressing up as British people and like doing their version of it and it's sort of weirdly offensive obviously not offensive in the same way but I sort of found myself being like no that's not how it is that's not what we are don't you dare represent us like that and the thing is is like yeah I think it is sort of weirdly I don't know it's not it's not Mr Darcy and uh and Elizabeth Bennett is it I mean it sort of is but it's It's not it's dressing it's like it's caricature. It's, yeah. It's over the top makeup and everything. And it's just a bit like, Bleh. I well, I know what you mean. That's not what made me feel revulsion, though. It's interesting you say that because most of the um, actors are British, are they not? I, I'm pretty sure it's a British cast. But there's an American behind it and I know it. And it's sort of like this filthy secret. Yeah, but that, like, so my instant reaction to Bridgerton, I wonder whether we arrived at the same point by different means here, Phil. Um, is, uh, you know, all roads lead to rubbish TV shows, <laughs> is that it's just Gossip Girl, but in Persuasion, Persuasion, what do I mean? Jane Austen era, uh, Britain, and they fantasised uh, a version of Britain in which no one has any jobs or no one has any obligations. And the men, sometimes they fight, but basically they they fight for a week so they can come home and, and flirt with all the women. That's kind of the the version here and all the women just talk I'm just about popping out to do a bit of war and I'll be yeah, back yeah just got just got some war this afternoon darling and I'll, I'll be right back for the ball the ball <laughs> it's just right it's just nonsense and so the, it's the flimsiest excuse for a kind of social drama um gossip drama that you've ever come across they even have gossip girl they have featherington or whoever she is writing the gossip mag that the queen is an avid reader of and uh, like they had that scene where she turns up and the queen's impressed because what I don't know. She's pretty. She, she's perfection or something like that. Right, and she, all she's like, done is bow. So now this is, I mean, this is getting to sticky territory. The thing I can't forgive Bridgerton for, along with many things, is that um, it exemplifies a type of story that I, I do find repulsive, which is that everyone cares about me. <laughs> That's basically <laughs> the show. It's everybody loves, everyone cares about me. Everyone is fascinated by me. That's the show. That's it. <laughs> this woman is at the centre of it and she's just... She doesn't need to do anything, but literally in scenes where she's walking, everyone turns their head to look at her. It's like a nightmare. It's it's like a nightmare where everyone Miss watches Bridgerton, you you're here. all the time. Yeah, and has an opinion about you, about what you do and the way you walk and the way that you talk. And I think it must be some kind of weird fantasy um, for a certain personality type that everyone does care about you. And you're going to have your moment where you you defy everyone's expectations by doing something really amazing like making a sarcastic comment (gasps) what there's a bit where what is it she said to the guy the duke who turns up and she's like oh i'm sure you uh got up some very reputable behavior and she gave a stern look like she's his mother oh sick bro she's burned i know yeah exactly see it just makes me angry because this whole thing is so shallow all it is is setups and slam dunks you know for a certain kind of drama 
and it makes me miserable it, uh, uh, because I don't think I don't think it's good for anyone. I know. And who are we to talk about this? I don't know. Well, let me let me just cap all of this with I'm 100 percent going to watch it and probably love it. That's what I'm going to say. I've only watched that one is, episode. Well, you like Gossip and, Girl, don't you? I can't well, I've it. watched some of Gossip Girl. I love the OC. Some I love of. One you Tree love, Hill. You love it all. Love I do love it all, and I'm going to show how much I love it all in the next bit. I guarantee it. But I'm curious what people think of Bridgerton and its Britishness, whether or not it is a repulsive or fine. Uh, also, I find it weird how they're sort of doing the very pro- proper Britishness and they all speak with lovely, eloquent language and vocabulary, very flowery. And oh, yes, Mr. Mr. Blah, blah. I'm going to, of course, get, educate you in the rumifications of blah, blah, blah. But then at the same time, they're just doing like really like modern day stuff. It is. Like, it's I, just a smokescreen. It's blah. <laughs> you know, it's based on a book series and I read reviews quite early on. A lot of people who read and enjoyed the books say, what on earth is this? This is like a travesty uh, of the original. So I think they've got Shonda to thank for that, probably. Well, there you go. There's an American behind She knows it. her business. Let's be she honest. She does know her business. And that is what I'm going to talk about next. OK, man, you, you got one final thing for us before we wrap up. So, yes, we've just talk, spoken about Bridgerton, Shonda behind it all. Well, let me tell you about Grey's Anatomy, because I would say it is one of the best shows you could possibly watch this lockdown, because it is unbelievably long, 17 seasons so far. How is that a good thing? Why would that be the first thing you said? (laughs) Why would that be the first thing you said? (laughs) Because when you get into it, you've got more. You don't have to think. You can think, oh, we'll watch another Grey's Anatomy. And um, But anyway, I've been watching this show. It's about Meredith Grey, who's the daughter of a, a very... Uh, prolific surgeon and uh, she's become a surgical intern trying to learn the ropes you've got mcdreamy patrick dempsey who's this brilliant yeah. neurosurgeon and uh, she's where's uh, he his... gone well i don't know sorry, i sorry, don't know but <laughs> <laughs> sorry laurie i'm trying to tell you a really important thing about Grey's Anatomy. And you're like, all right sorry, what, 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 what about him but what, as I've been watching it, I've been enjoying it. We've been watching a lot. We're up to season 11 now. We've watched it. We've cried at different moments. Characters have died. Characters have left. Mm. They got married. They've been diagnosed with uncurable things and then been cured. It's all fun and games in Grey's Anatomy as they operate themselves through life. But I keep on coming back to this thought. And, well, I wonder if you agree with me or have, have noticed something similar, which is that I keep on thinking about Dragon Ball Z because... <laughs> In Dragon Ball Z, this this is the for those of you who don't know, this is a Japanese animation. It was a manga, now it's an animation. It's it's kind of like the grandfather of all these anime shows you might have seen or heard about. And in this show, you've got Goku and Gohan and Piccolo mm. and and Vegeta, and they're all these Super Saiyan people. And as the show progresses, it ran on ages and ages and ages, a bit like Grey's Anatomy. And what happens is in the first series, Goku he's trying to fight his little uh, Raditz, his brother, and he can't beat him. And then he works out a super new technique, and then he super bomb blah, and he wins the day and then season two rolls around and it's like whoa, whoa, whoa. well that was exciting how are we going to beat that so then they introduce a new villain and then they have to get even better and become even, even more, more powerful. powerful they've got to raise that power <laughs> levels power levels man power levels he's over nine thousand. he's so strong how's he this strong who knows and as i was watching Grey's anatomy i kept on thinking like man they've got a bit of an escalation problem here because <laughs> because they started off a perfectly reasonable show and they've got to operate on hernias. And it was a big deal if you could do like a hernia operation or remove a spleen. Mm. That was like a challenge. And you've got a neurosurgeon. He's doing some brain operations. Fast forward like a couple seasons and it's like, oh, well, those those villains aren't good enough now. We need to have like life altering surgery on like conjunct, conjoined twins and we have to separate them. And they have to keep on like upping the stakes, which means they have to like up the abilities of their surgeons. And so now you get these <laughs> surgeons who used to be just really good mentors and like, they'd be like, this is how you treat a patient and they do quite emotional stories but now literally there's a surgeon who's using a genetics lab to cure somebody with a genetic disease using a modified version of hiv and it's like Wow. <laughs> I was watching oh, this with amazing. Ellie. I was watching that's this like with Drake Ellie. Ramore operating on his own brain. <laughs> right, exactly. And I was speaking to her and she's like, oh, yeah, of course, a surgeon who was doing like, has spent years and years learning how to like operate on the spleen and everything like that. Of course, she's going to take time out of her life to go into a genetics lab, not a geneticist and not, not somebody who's spent years and years studying that. The, no, a surgeon, no. a person who uses knives is now going to go in, modify a gene or a, a disease to go treat some gene therapy stuff. It's not even surgery. Like, what's she doing there? But, <laughs> That's the, the crazy thing. It's like, it's all about power levels because you now have these world-class surgeons all in this one Seattle hospital. 
And they have to keep on upping the stakes because you can't just have one uh, super brilliant heart surgeon. You need to get the world class one in. And of course, your characters, you want them, you don't want them to be rubbish and not very good at their jobs. So they start becoming really good. And you get Christina Yang, who suddenly is doing this never before seen surgery. And she's a she's a cardio god and she's amazing. And, and yet they don't know what to do because you can't all be amazing and you can't keep on becoming more and more amazing. Yeah. You know, what's his name? Derek Shepard, McDreamy. He eventually gets called by the president to be involved in um, a brain what? mapping surgery. That's amazing. <laughs> that's and like, it's like this big thing. It's like when the president calls, you've got to answer that call. And it's like, will he leave? Will he not? That just makes you think of Ron Burgundy. Uh, you stay classy, planet Earth. <laughs> like, where else can you go? Uh, no, well, man, I mean, I think, doesn't that just show you? It's because they know what works, right? And uh, people love success. They love to see their um, heroes overcome adversity and succeed because we all need to believe it's like a drug, isn't it? That that's what's around the corner for us, right? So yeah. just you live, you live long enough, you probably will get the call from the president. <laughs> and of course, like, I can't, I don't blame them because you, you don't want to watch a show about somebody who's not, who's average Disagree. At their job. And no, I disagree with that. That's, there are plenty of shows about uh, about exactly that sort of thing. that's why that's one of the reasons that scrubs was uh, so enjoyable up to season four anyway when actually they <laughs> did take a bit of the Grey's anatomy pill because up to season four they were all just training so they weren't that good at anything like maybe they were the best in their group of people but they weren't that good and they failed a lot and they made a lot of mistakes and it was really entertaining and then suddenly after season four and season five elliot reed becomes the specialist and she's suddenly wearing the white coat. Do you remember this? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And they and they all of them suddenly start to become amazing at what they do. You've got to raise those power levels. They can't just be a really good neurosurgeon. Now they're world class neurosurgeons where people fly in and have their inoperable brain tumors removed. Amazing. Like it's Love it. it's it's sort of a weird link that I couldn't ignore, and I wanted to tell somebody about it between Dragon Ball Z, Dragon Ball Z. and Grey's Anatomy. I think, anyway. I think that's very compelling, man. And you never know; it might uh, it might improve the the feelings of both of them. I bet you Dragon Ball Z fans would love to hear how much their kung fu manga is like Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> There's a huge, huge Venn diagram. That 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 Venn diagram of those two fan bases, oh my goodness, you would not believe the number food, of people. It's junk food, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's very easy entertainment with um, quite a lot of emotional stuff in there. But um, but the, the medical side of it is quite funny to me just because it is ridiculous, like the levels well, and lengths it goes to. Do you know, oddly enough, you've made me want to watch it because it, at the very <laughs> least, it sounds like it'd be good for a laugh uh, towards the, the final seasons. Very, very good, Phil. Well done. You've done it. Can you believe? You won't believe the link between anime and Grey's Anatomy. Okay, well, that draws episode three to a close. Thanks very much for joining us. Hope you enjoyed the deep dive into The Mandalorian uh, the beginning. I think that'll be our sort of pattern from now on. We might do one deep dive and then just some silly little bits, right? Yeah, I guess so. You just told me. On, on our I know, show I just lives. thought about it right then. <laughs> <laughs> okay. just, thought about it. just so we're clear, I, you're asking me to agree under the spot, under pressure. So that's fine. It's going to be great. Uh, we'll do Mandalorian season two at some point. Uh, Phil's got Wonder Woman 1984 up his sleeve. Um, I've got a whole bunch of stuff actually that we can talk about, but we're trying to keep it eclectic. So, and part of that is you guys. So get in touch if you've got. Uh, a comment on something that we talked about. Do you want us to cover something? Opinions, blah, 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 whatever. Flixandfilm at gmail.com or at Flixandfilm on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you and we'll read out your email and it'll be fun. And uh, once we're on Apple, I hope we're on Apple by now, but we still might not be, um, we should see the show start to sort of Skyrocket, shape. you know, yeah. over 9,000 subscribers. Over 9,000 yeah. 9, power level. Who's our sort of big rival in the podcast space? Um, I'm, I'm thinking Louis Theroux. Yeah, right. I'm sure he gets nervous about the fact we just started a show. We're, we're young, but we're scrappy. Yeah, exactly that, Phil. Well said. Um, okay, any bonus bits to close out the show? I feel like I've missold it to you because I said, oh, I've got a little bonus thing. It's it's just a tiny little thing. I watched the first episode of uh, Tokyo um, Midnight Stories. Midnight Diner, Tokyo Mid- Stories. Well done. <laughs> well done. Yeah, yeah. And you are. It, I wasn't expecting the ending, but I did nope. find it. I found myself very very unsure culturally of the things I was seeing because yeah. I've never seen a radio jockey shown like that who wearing like a really nice sports suit <laughs> and a jumper. Like, I just don't really think of like a, it looks a late, cool though, night, doesn't it? There's a lot of late night radio that host show. wearing that sort of thing. <laughs> um, but yeah, I didn't see the ending coming. It was quite moving, wasn't it? Yeah, I thought it was quite interesting and unexpected. Um, but I found myself just kind of getting... It, it's, it's almost the weird incidental characters that are not part of the main narrative because you kind of pick up, oh, this is about taxi driver and this is that person. Yeah, yeah, But it's yeah. almost like you you miss the 
the immediate recognition of who that person is in that society. So there was some guy who was just in one scene who was saying, oh, I'd like to do this because I'm this sort of person. And I couldn't quite place him. What is he in, in society's view? Who is he? Who is I realized this? Tell me again. It was this, it was this kind of slightly bigger guy, buzzed head and he was sort of saying how pretty this this person was and how like i just didn't quite know where to gauge him was he like uh just a regular sort of person was he meant to be a bit of a slob was he meant to be a bit creepy but, i couldn't and quite he wasn't place in the him. end well he was just an incidental person it didn't really matter oh, right but he was just there and i found myself more so than ever i think watching something from a different culture you don't read as quickly who these people are um, that's one of the joys about it because you just have to take everything at face value I agree with you there it's one of the things I like about it you discover it as you and go actually, yeah I prefer that because the problem and this is one of the reasons I started doing it the problem with watching um, English language dramas and shows all the time is you kind of you're so bound up with all the cultural context that you can spot really early if there's a political angle or if there's mm. a social angle if there's an agenda there then it tends to set all my sort of senses tingling and I, I don't like that Whereas because I don't know anything about the intricacies of like society in Japan, I'm totally oblivious to all that. So in fact, what you're describing, I find a positive thing. It's a palate cleanser. Exactly. All I can do is watch it and take it at face value, which personally I really enjoy. Well, thank you for watching it. Do you think you'll keep watching it? I don't know. I'm kind of, I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe. I think it was definitely worth watching the first episode to see. And I'm kind of curious about the next one. Um, Yeah. Do it, so think... do it until you start spotting the regulars who come in. That's where the real Oh, is. there's regulars. You didn't tell me that. Yes, I did. It was part of my big recommendation thing. <laughs> I don't remember it. Too, uh, and the, master, the master's a good character, isn't he? Master. He hasn't really said He's anything so cool. yet. I exactly. haven't quite worked him out yet. I feel like maybe it's like I'm, I'm on season one, episode one, man. Give me a break. Let me let me get yeah, no, warmed no, no, up fair to enough. It, you know? Well, I'm, thank you for doing so. And look, I, I know our mum watched it and she enjoyed it. So look, if you take a dive and watch uh, Midnight Diner Tokyo story, uh, Stories, then you've got to tell me whether you love it uh, in the same way that I do, whether it is indeed a sort of cultural and entertainment palate cleanser, um, which is just really great. Um, here's my bonus for you, Phil. Okay. Yeah, sorry, that wasn't really a bonus. It was more like a whole other section. No, no, I'm glad you did it. Nonetheless, uh, Judith went to the dentist recently and at the end of the session they said, oh, well, how about going to the dental hygienist? And Judith said, okay, sure, if you think I need to, then, then I'll go. Then when she got to the reception, they were like, oh, okay, that'll be £50. So, what? £50? <gasps> I thought you were telling me I needed to go. And there is actually a clause saying that if the dentist is saying you need this, then it doesn't cost you that because it's blah, 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 especially because she was on maternity leave. Long story, boring. So I just kind of said, mm, that's quite a lot of money for someone to clean your teeth. And then I made, it made me start thinking, like, how does one begin a career as a dental hygienist? Because probably what happens is at night, after you've had pasta or whatever, you go, you go to the bathroom and you, you brush your teeth and you look in the mirror and you think, man, they're really clean. I am really good. I am really good. I am really good at this. I should, I should see if people will pay me to brush their teeth because let me tell you, they're, they're sparkling white. Look, and the molars, not completely clear. I'm, man, I am good at this. That's, what that, that's kind of what I thought. That's the end. Okay, I will leave it there. Thanks, fam. Thanks very much, listeners. See you next week. Bye-bye.